Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. From the book of the prophet Isaiah, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The astute among you will note that the verse which I began with did not appear in today's reading. It's from chapter 54 of the book of the prophet Isaiah, not chapter 55. There's a reason for that, and it will be made manifest to you. Today's selection in chapter 55 from the book of the prophet Isaiah sees the the prophet foretell of a banquet, a banquet of feasting upon the abundant and ever-present word of God. It is no rubber chicken dinner. It includes a call not only to repentance, which is clear enough, but a call to receive the compassion and pardon of the Lord. These texts are at the end of this book, and they are calling upon the people of God in exile to return to Jerusalem. In the beginning of chapter 54, Isaiah calls out to the daughter of Zion. You may remember this from last week in the sermon on the daughter of Zion. Listen to what he says. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. The daughter of Zion is envisioned here as a desolate, infertile woman who will nevertheless bear many children. You can think about the various places in Scripture where there is a desolate, infertile woman. We've been reading in the daily office uh, in the first book of Samuel about Hannah, for instance, who stands outside the door there and she, she, she weeps and wails and the priest thinks she's drunk. You can think about Elizabeth. You can think about all these women who throughout Scripture believe themselves to be desolate and fertile, spurned. And here the whole nation is envisioned in this way. This daughter of Zion has been made desolate not only by the destruction wrought by the Babylonians in destroying the city, but because she has been fruitless in herself. We know what had become of God's people during this time. They had worshipped the gods of the foreign nations. They had sacrificed sons and daughters. They had brought cultic images into the temple. They had committed great acts of injustice, especially against widows. All of this has meant that the nation has not been a fruitful vine. She has not borne the fruit promised to Abraham that through this nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed. There's another daughter of Zion for you, Sarah. Remember that? The Word of God has not taken root in this nation, and yet God, in His compassion, is calling the exile back. Calling upon a renewed nation to enlarge her tent. To let the curtains be stretched out, to spread to the right and to the left. The daughter of Zion is to forget her shameful youth, as well as the reproach of her widowhood. She has been left a widow. There is no doubt that many here today bear great shame because of the sins of our youth, maybe even the sins of now. There is no doubt that there are those today who feel desolate. This message is for us today. Isaiah continues on, Your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. 
The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. This is, I mean, it's it's an absolutely heartbreaking thing to see a young woman who has been just basically thrown out, deserted. And listen to what he says. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Note something here. The daughter of Zion is not redeemed because she has become morally perfect or because she has been faithful. No, she has been filled with shame. She feels her desolation. She has been deserted and grieved like a young wife who has been thrown out of the house and divorced. It is almost, however, as if God Himself is taking the blame for all of that. But now, he says, that anger and desertion will be replaced with compassion and love. The hand of the daughter's enemies will be turned away. Why? How? Not because she's perfected herself morally. Not because she's virtuous. Not because she's been faithful. Simply because she is chosen. What is envisioned is simple. And really and truly the best and clearest eschatological vision of future glory for God's people. That of marriage. A marriage between a redeemer and the object of his love. Between a woman with a past and a God who has made a future for her. This nuptial arc in Scripture is so important. It is the most fitting, most beautiful image of the covenantal love between God and his people. The pagans had multiple narratives of divine human marriages, but these were between a God and one person. My oldest daughter is currently reading a, a, a young people's fiction series in which this sort of thing happens. It's a kind of retelling of Greek myths in modern day. What is unique about the biblical narrative and the biblical image of marriage is that it is God choosing to enter into a marriage of exclusive and eternal fidelity with an entire people. In the Old Testament text, it is a trying marriage. Israel's love is fickle, disloyal, and volatile. She bears direct responsibility for her shame, but God is continually faithful to the bride whom he has chosen. In the New Testament, we see God's arrangement, not just of a divine human marriage, but the church being joined in a new covenant in blood to her bridegroom, the God-man Jesus. Scripture, as Christopher West points out, begins with a marriage in the garden, and it ends with a marriage in a garden. We might say it begins with a marriage in a garden and it ends with a marriage, capital M. Or it begins with marriage in the garden. In chapter, five, chapter 55, which we read today, Isaiah envisions the marriage banquet. It is a sharp turn from the denouncements and curses of the beginning of the text. It is a text of joy and encouragement. In this marriage feast, the bride is not a single person, but a, but a people, a nation of those whom God has called to be his own. 
This banquet is not a banquet in honor of the bride and groom. Yay, let's all clap our hands and welcome Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. It's not like any other wedding. It is a banquet in honor of the bride. The bride is told she must buy wine and milk, but without money and without price. How does she do that? She has to buy it, but she can't buy it. The price has been paid. She is therefore to delight herself in rich food and fatness, a life that she could not live apart from the redemption and compassion that is freely offered to her. It is a redemption and a compassion that she could not buy. Over and over again in Scripture, the daughter of Zion is is depicted, this wonderful scriptural image of the daughter of Zion being drunk, being drunk with joy. Think of Hannah. The priest thinks she's drunk, and she's not drunk, but she's wailing on and on like she is. Think of Sarah. What does she do when she hears this? This tithing about her bearing a son. What does she do? She laughs. Think about the church on the day of Pentecost. What is it that the people who watch by say? They're drunk. And what does Peter say? These men aren't drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. They seem drunk. This everlasting covenant exchange in blood is the basis upon which the bride, the daughter of Zion, joyfully seeks the Lord. It is upon this basis of the marriage covenant that she forsakes her wicked ways and thoughts, and it is on this basis that she worships. I really do wish more people would understand this. It is perhaps one of the most common misconceptions of Christian believing that exists today, that Christians believe that by being a good person, they can earn the Lord's favor and be saved. No! I don't know which Bible people that think that are reading. You know the reality of it is they're not reading. The teaching of Scripture is that we have no power to save or help ourselves. The power for all of this comes directly from the very heart of God who pours out his word on his people, a powerful and affecting word, an effective word that has its effect. Remember what Paul says in Romans, that faith comes by what? By what? Hearing. I'm glad you read Scripture. Isaiah's vision is of the Word of God being poured out upon a barren people to bring fruitfulness, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. The Word accomplishes this work of divine compassion and love. We know not what this Word is. We know who this Word is. The Word of God incarnate. The bridegroom come to meet the bride in the very city of Jerusalem, meeting Another daughter of Zion who goes to a tomb weeping. And who does she meet? But Jesus, the Savior and Redeemer of all. It's one of the things I love about this image. Daughters. Daughters. Consider for a moment the parable that we read today. I always read this parable as a kid and thought, what do I have to do to be good soil? So how can I become good soil? You know, there's got to be a way. What if I could just kind of like make myself better soil? I mean, 
Texas gardeners know this. There's nothing you can do to make the soil good here. That's why you build a raised bed and you put somebody else's dirt in it. What sets, what sets the word, what sets that seed that falls in the good soil apart? Is it not fruitfulness? Bringing forth a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold? The sower sows where he will. Or he wills to, sell, to sow. And the faith of God's people can always be measured in fruitfulness, always measured in multiplication. St. Augustine says of this that the hundredfold are the fruits of the martyrs. The sixtyfold are the fruit of the holy virgins. And the thirtyfold, that of the wedded, since they struggle more arduously. I love that. Make of that what you will. But it stands that God's will is to make a people for himself who have been bound to him exclusively. The martyrs do not fall away when persecutions come. They won't even to save the lives of their families apostatize. They do not forsake the Lord. The virgins, by the vow they make to God, and the married, by the vows they make before God to each other. Friends, this is so important that we not forget that the life of celibacy is, in Scripture, superior to the married life. Why? Because it shows us a life that shows us the true end of human life, to be wedded to God. I mean, Martin Luther introduced this idea, which is completely unbiblical, that marriage and celibacy are, in, are on equal footing. He was wrong. He was just dead wrong. The celibate, the monk, the consecrated version, they show us what it means to be a people who are restored to God, what it means to be made whole, needing nothing but God, preferring nothing to the love of Christ. They show us that a person can be everything that God intends them to be without sex. Isn't that incredible today to hear that? In the 55th chapter, this covenant love that Isaiah speaks of does not merely renovate and restore the people of God as a bride. It also has another effect, which is that it restores the creation. Not only will the people go out in joy and be led forth in peace, but all of creation becomes a worshiping entity. The mountains and hills joining in the singing of the daughter of Zion, the bride. The trees of the field clapping their hands. And not only the hills, the mountains, and trees worship, but the whole fauna will be changed. No more thorns and briars, but cypresses and myrtles. We have cypresses in Texas. I think we even have myrtles occasionally. But you know, you see those big bald cypresses. That is not what's being talked about here. The cypresses are Middle Eastern cypresses, which if you've ever been there, they're amazingly beautiful old trees that, that weather all kinds of storms that, are, that grow in the middle of sand. They're incredible. And today we look forward to a day in which the whole creation will resound with the praises of God. This is one of the neat things about having the Eucharist at 8.30 out on that empty lot as we were outside. There's a message, and it's not a bad message that's sent by Christians meeting inside a place. 
but it's so important that we see this. Sin is a disease which doesn't just affect human life, it affects all of creation. It's not just something I struggle with in my heart, it is something which defines creation as it is. Sin enters through one woman, and this is the hope of the daughter of Zion, this whole idea of the bride being joined to Christ, chosen and adopted, that not only will she be redeemed, but the whole creation redeemed for her. For centuries, theologians crafted this idea of pure nature. The modern project was that of a creation that God was not in. The idea that God and nature could not possibly be further apart. You may have grown up in the church and thought this way. God is up there and I'm here. That's it. That's how it is. In the last century, theologians like Dominique Chenu, Henri de Lubac, and John Danielou read deeply not only in Scripture but in the early tradition and found that not only the church fathers but the biblical authors themselves understood that all of creation is shot through with the mystery of the transcendent Christ. This means that there really is not some kind of purely natural and non-theological conception of anything in creation, and especially for them, marriage. One of the things they write on endlessly is marriage, is an image of this. And not just natural marriage, but this divine human marriage of the church and her Savior. And in fact, what we find is that marriage has never been purely natural. This is one of the mistakes Christians have made. Is they think, oh, well, it's just natural, therefore we can do whatever we want with it because God doesn't care. It's dead wrong. But has always, marriage has always showed forth the final end of all things, a bride worshiping her husband and the husband bringing honor to the bride. This is why marriage must be held in honor by Christians, even if it's held in honor by no one else. One of the things that was really lost in, uh, and you can take this out on Father Jonathan, lost in the prayer book, in this new prayer book, we should have gotten it back, was this wonderful, wonderful phrase, with my body I thee worship with all my good worldly goods endow. Some people thought it's, it's a bit much to say that I, that I worship another human being. No, it's exactly what you do in marriage. It's exactly what you do. It captures it perfectly. Marriage is not purely, simply, solely natural. There's something much more going on. And this sheds light on what Paul is saying to the Romans about being in the flesh. What he means is not that we should enter into some kind of Gnostic dualism in which we say, flesh bad, spirit good. Okay, let's move on from there. No, that's terrible. That's a terrible way to live your life. He is saying that to live purely in the natural body, to live as though the only reality is that which is visible, is a betrayal of the fundamental understanding Christians should have of creation. Not that it is the place where God isn't, but it is, that the, it is the very arena within which God has always worked and will always work. We Christians believe that each and every Christian body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why for most of Christian history, Christians could not countenance the idea of segregated worship. The idea that slaves could be in one place and their masters in another. Everyone worshiped together. 
And this was, in fact, the very idea which brought down slavery in the Western world for a while. The people to whom Isaiah appealed had felt bereft. They had lost the presence of God, part of living in a demystified universe, at least in terms of the common understandings of our day, is that we no longer view the creation with the kind of awe and wonder that we should have. Today's American Christian is more deist than Christian. We have so much in common with these exiles. They had looked for salvation of a geopolitical sort and had been disappointed. They had looked to wealth and power to save them, and they had been disappointed. They had looked to the gods of the foreign nations and had become barren and fruitless and lost. I love what G.K. Chesterton says about this. He who marries the spirit of the times will soon find himself a widower. Do we not see today the disappointment that comes from setting all hope, all hope on a natural order, on the flesh alone? It's a disaster. It's not working. It's painful. It's desolate. It's fruitless. No one likes it. And today we hear those wonderful words of Isaiah. Listen to this. And if you're a morning prayer prayer, you'll know this by heart. It's one of the great things about morning prayer. You get to memorize a lot of scripture, and this is a good one to memorize. And by the way, it's not all about evangelism. It's about more than that. Seek the Lord, will he wills to be found, call upon him when he draws near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the evil ones their thoughts, and let them turn to the Lord, and he will have compassion, and let them turn to our God, and he will richly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as rain and snow fall from the heavens and return not again, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What is that thing that he sends it forth to do? We lose all sense of context when we take these things out of context. What's the thing that he sends his word forth to do? To call a bride to himself. That's what he sends forth the word to do. And so the appeal I make this morning is simple. That is to implore you on behalf of Christ the bridegroom, since you are the one who is strayed and not him, be reconciled to God. All that you need for reconciliation is right there. It's been given to you. Let, because nothing stands in your way, let nothing stand in the way of seeking repentance and grace. Let every obstacle be tossed aside. Let every misgiving and fear give way to love. And let every bit of shame and scorn give way to the Lord's compassion. All that the Lord may bring forth the fruit of the gospel in you and in the church, his holy bride. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.